Welcome to Parallel Quest, a podcast where two friends talk about the stories we love and share the personal stories of the impact they've had on our lives. I'm one of your hosts, Cody Haggard, and alongside, or maybe more accurately said, across the internet from me, my great friend and co-host, Zach Butler. Zach, how you doing today? What up, what up? I am great, man. Ready to do this one. Got my pumpkin tea here. Ooh, ready to pumpkin go. Pumpkin tea. There you go. Getting yeah. getting that pumpkin that pumpkin season going. I know we talked about that last week a little bit. Yeah. About not the, the coffee. Spice season. I know you're not you're the pumpkin tea. I like that. Mm. I like that. And I you know, I'm excited today. I'm happy today. We're recording this on October 12, 2020, and we were just talking about our Cleveland Browns hey. being 4 and 1 and Ooh. I, I really enjoy football. I love watching it. And I know this is not a football podcast, but I'll tell you what, man. Growing up in the Cleveland area, you're just kind of, you just, you're a more resilient creature because you're just, you're so used to what it's like to lose, mm-hmm. right? And have things not go your way. Yes. So it's really, really nice even to see the Browns pull out a couple of victories against finally beating a, a pretty good team in the mm-hmm. Indianapolis Colts. So, ha, huh, man, I'm feeling good today. Yeah, man. Feeling good today. Resilience. That's what we learn in, mm-hmm. in Cleveland, Ohio is resilience, yep. man. I'm actually yep. sitting here with my my tea on on my dog pound um like little cup holder thing. So <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready, man. Ready or as they call it out in the in your neck of the woods, the dog pond. The dog pond. <laughs> the That's dog right. Pond. Yes, yes, here in Pittsburgh. <laughs> the a dog pound. Exactly. <laughs> But hey, now, man, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to ask, do people really talk with that Yinzer accent that we kind of over-exaggerate? Oh, 100%. No, you're not even <laughs> over-exaggerating it. And to all my, my Pittsburgh listeners out here, I love you guys, but you know who you are. And it is it is like downtown, Yin's going downtown. <laughs> like, slippy. That's another word that I had to learn upon slippy. moving here. Slippy. If it's Explain so- it to me. So if you're walking on some tiled floor say in a restaurant or even at your own house say there's a little water that's spilled there and you're walking by and you walk across and you kind of like slide a little you would make the comment whoa it's slippy instead of oh. slippery so you'd okay. say it's slippy in here or if the uh if there's snow on the road and it's real slushy and nasty outside someone might say hey be careful it's slippy out there Okay, like, I got what? it. <laughs> yeah, I'm you know, I'm going to I'm going to pay that a little bit of respect, you know? I'm going to give that a little respect because that is an efficient use of syllables. Why waste? Why waste that that precious um talking time in adding a little bit of that er in there when you could just do slippy instead slippy. of slippery? You know, it takes you know, that's an extra syllable. Yeah. yeah good I good mean, on you, Pittsburgh. It it's a it's it's one of their few words that that are are good. I think there's a there's one that drives me crazy. The one that drives me crazy is Jagov. Have you heard that one? No, but I I could deduce what that means. It's it's a jerk. If you're being a yeah. jerk, yeah, yeah, they'll they'll call you a Jagov. J A G O F F. And I've been called that a few times out here. So especially when what? driving, yeah, you. Yeah. I I don't know. I thought I was being a nice guy in these situations, but. I guess I I was I was showing Jagov tendencies 
to others. I got, dude. I gotta be honest, man. Like you are one of the last people I could ever imagine really ticking somebody off. You're just such a nice guy. You're such a pleasant person. You know, I, I, I guess I really rub some people the wrong way on the roads. I mean, there's some aggressive drivers out here. The one okay. thing we always joke about in Pennsylvania is people run out of we call blinker fluid because no one uses their blinkers out here so they'll just cut you off in traffic or you <laughs> just move over you're like oh okay i guess he ran- doesn't have any more blinker fluid in his <laughs> in his car it's, i like that yeah yeah well we actually had some kids at our at my store um that a lot of them are younger they're 15 16 so they're just starting to learn to drive and the guys in the our kitchen had pulled like a prank on one of the younger kids and they told him to go to the auto zone and ask for blinker fluid. <laughs> and so he, <laughs> he did. And he relayed those the story later on. It was just like, they told me to leave once I <laughs> asked them. So they got him good, man. They got him good. <laughs> hey, I got a question for, is this myth or is this truth? I've heard that uh, in the Pittsburgh area, instead of saying like, hey, We'll revisit this later. I heard like the way to say it out there is we'll circle back to that. Is that is that a popular phrase or is that is that fiction? Hmm. I see. Here's the thing, man. I always thought that was like corporate speak. Like okay. we'll circle back around. We'll touch base. Like that corporate talk. So mm-hmm. I hear it, but okay. that's usually from people in corporate or okay. from. It's like higher up directors when we're kind of talking corporate. Circle back to that. Yeah, we'll circle circle back down there. So circle back to that one down there. (laughs) So (laughs) I I I want to say that it's probably more of a corporate word, but I think maybe I mean it could be could be a Pittsburgh word. P i x b u r g h. Pittsburgh. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Well, let's start getting into our stories from the week here. As we are talking fall, as we're talking football, I think both of us kind of have some fall-themed stories from the week here. So, Zach, tell me how things are going with the fall festival. Yeah, man. So we had a great weekend out here in Pittsburgh and especially New Wilmington, which is where my wife um, runs. Well, she doesn't really run it any longer, but for the sake of the story, she's still involved with the fall festival. and. For those who don't know, my wife, yes, she does run weddings and she's a wedding coordinator, but she also helped, used to help run and still has some of her hand in, um, it, it's a fall festival. So it's like this 70, 72 acre farm that is a, a lot of fun. Like people come from all over just to like do, it's agritainment. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but it's. This is like up and coming yeah, business. Yeah, yeah. Where it's just it's entertainment, but for the fall. Or for, for sure. a farm. So we were up there on Sunday and it was a gorgeous day. Um 72 acres, so you can spread out. Um COVID is not really a concern there because it's in the open air. You can wear your mask. You don't have to, but you're kind of encouraged to. So it's COVID friendly. Um, but I was up there with my wife and some friends and dude, we had a really, really good time. We did the corn maze, uh, this year their corn maze is in the shape of dude. Perfect. I don't know if you've heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't. And when I heard about it, I had forgotten the name when I was trying to explain it to some people at my store and I ended up calling them, um, 
like dude sweet i think is what i said or like dude, dude awesome. sweet okay yeah and like for the longest time so like the 15 year old kids are like what are you talking about and then some kid was like boomer yeah exactly yeah <laughs> some kid was like, you mean dude perfect i was like oh yeah yeah that's that's the thing and they're like oh my gosh i can't believe you said dude sweet like, <laughs> like i can't remember it but it the whole the whole farm or the whole uh the whole corn maze is in there that it's like a bunch of their faces from that youtube show so that was a good time we walked through there and then dude i got the craziest best burger i've had on any farm i've ever been to and now i will say farms are not really known for their cuisine i would say like it's if, if if you eating on a farm you're usually eating like a heartier fuller greasier meal so farms aren't really known for for high-end cuisine but this leah's farm they've stepped up their game this year dude they've got stepping it up down there oh dude they're stepping it up hard down there they (laughs) they got jumbo shrimp this year they've got a salmon burger like a blackened salmon burger they've got pulled pork sandwiches which is the the pulled pork is smoked for 28 hours. So you're getting some tender, juicy pulled pork, man. And I got so hungry right now, dude. So uh, you just wait, man. (laughs) So I got, I ordered the Barnwelly burger and this thing is like, this is, this is the meal to get there because you've got your burger and first they top it off with pulled pork a little bit of tomato, a little bit of lettuce, okay. all right? Okay. And then you go over the this little station and dude, they're cooking out in the open. So you get you get the smell of pulled pork smoking and you get the smell of burgers turning over and sizzling on the grill. You got the charcoal smell, dude. It is mm. you are like salivating as you're standing there cuz you got to walk over with your little tray and you have your bur- or you have your bun there. And so they give you a double decker burger off fresh off the grill on oh, your man. bun dude you top it off with the with the pulled pork the lettuce the tomato dude and then and then you putting any you, you putting any like barbecue sauce or anything on that to spice no it up because a the, bit, the pulled pork is 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 like covered in it man like okay they, i got they you mix right. barbecue sauce into that so you don't need it no you. extras man this is all, all right. just ready to go out of the out of the gate and so in order to you know in case you're you're not full after you're eating your double decker pulled pork sandwich they give you seasoned fries they give you old bay seasoned fries dude Ooh. so good so that good sounds incredible oh i'm really i'm i i am ready to pack up the family and <laughs> head to pittsburgh yeah. this weekend so i'm saying i'm telling you dude like from the years past that I've been there, and it's always been fun, but the food's been, you know, what, what do you expect from a farm? But this year, they got they got some chefs up in there, man. So they they crushed it with the food, and I was I was so full, I couldn't even. I I wanted to get a funnel cake after that because I like I always like topping any any time I'm at like a fair or a carnival or at like. An amusement park. I like topping off my experience with a funnel cake because I feel like that's mm. that is the quintessential fair food. Is a funnel cake 
with powdered sugar over it. Dude, I was so full after this burger, I couldn't even think about eating a funnel cake. That's how big this thing was. So I, if you, for listeners who have little kids, Cody, I know that you, you've got three, they would Mm -hmm, totally mm -hmm. love the farm. But if you, if even if you don't have kids, it is a culinary experience right now. So yeah, highly recommend the food there, dude. Man, what, what a, what a time to be alive where, (laughs) where you could go to the dude sweet maze and uh, get yourself (laughs) (laughs) the dude sweet the bro awesome get, get yourself a very delicious burger topped off with some pulled pork dude sweet man that is uh, i gotta be honest zach that is that's like a real boomer thing to say that's like uh that's like when your mom or dad is trying to get you to go to chipotle and they keep calling it chipotles like they mix up the l and the t and then they and then they make it plural for some reason. To the Chipotle, to Chipotle. Hey, do you want to do you want to go to Chipotle's for for dinner tonight? Or Dude, another like... thing is people like to pluralize Costco. Hey, did you go to Costco's? You go to, <laughs> can you go to Costco's and get me something? Do people do the same thing when they're referring to the internet? They say the internets or the interwebs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hold on one second. Hold on one sec. I got a, I got a uh, a person in here. My son is in here. Uh, Ezra, do you want to say hello on the microphone? Is that why you're in this room right now? You want to say hello? Hi. Well, everybody, that is hey, my son. Buddy. That is to my son Ezra. He is here. He can't he can't hear you because I've got the headphones on. But wow. Mr. Zach said hello. Do you want to say hi to all the audience? Mm-hmm. Say hello, everybody. And now we're going to send Ezra back to his room. But, Zach, why don't you keep going on with this story for a second while I uh, dismiss Ezra? <laughs> oh, yeah. Dude, so I'm telling you, this, this, the food here, or the food at the farm, is, is to die for. I think if I, I, I will be back this upcoming weekend. So if anybody, well, none of you will hear this before this weekend. So, unfortunately, you won't be able to see me up there. But I will be back up this weekend, and dude, I'm I'm dying to try that salmon sandwich, dude. It looks yeah, so good in the picture. That is high quality cuisine for for mm-hmm. any place that's not like a sit down restaurant, you know, like mm-hmm. a black and salmon burger. That's that's a you know that's a big deal. Like, yeah, that's dude, a it's big not frozen. Fish. It's not frozen yeah. either. Oh, apparently, nice. so I don't know where they're catching salmon in like Northwest <laughs> Pennsylvania, but. <laughs> They're getting it. They're getting it not frozen. So that's something. Uh, I just want to thank you and uh, the audience for bearing with us there as as Ezra came in my recording room. I uh, I typically edit that type of stuff out, but you know this is a family show here, and I wanted you guys to to know that sometimes we get interruptions and it yeah. happens. Yeah. And I don't feel like going through and editing it out. So all good. Man. You guys got to hear Great. my son. I'd love to hear him. Love to hear from him. But I'd also like to hear about this phantom pain and the DAC injury, which I think I know what you're referring to with the DAC injury here. Okay. So these two things are related. Zach, you know about my ankle injury. You lived that uh, mm, and, yeah. alongside me. Yeah. And so yesterday, we talked a little bit about football at the, at the head of the show. Yesterday, I saw a injury in the NFL that was horrible, terrible. Anyone who's a football fan, um, a quarterback named Dak Prescott went down and, and he he did 
dislocated his ankle, probably broke some ligaments in there, maybe even had a fracture. I'm not sure the actual diagnosis of the uh, injury, but it reminded me a lot of a similar injury I had. Because whenever you see the ankle, so so a lot of times when you roll your ankle, your uh, your outside ankle will roll in, right? So it'll roll mm. in towards the inside of your leg. But whenever the inside of your ankle rolls out towards the outside of your leg, those are bad, bad oh, injuries. Oh, boy, I know. And uh, when I was uh, in high school, I had a minor, uh, a minor roll of the ankle, we'll say, uh, because typically when it rolls that opposite way, it can get really bad. Mm. Uh, but my ankle rolled that way. I fractured and tore some ligaments in the old ankle there. And, uh, as soon as I saw that, and I was watching this doctor break it down, there's this doctor on YouTube who breaks down sports injuries. I actually find it quite fascinating. Um, he's got like little props and some graphics he uses to break down how the body actually works. And it's, mm. it's really fascinating. I think his name's Brian Sorter. If I remember correctly, if you guys are interested in that type of thing, you can look him up. But anyway, as I'm watching this, like I have this instant like i don't know if this is a real thing like anyone who knows how the brain works and stuff but i started to like relive that pain oh. of my pre of my previous injury past and of course you know it's kind of like that same feeling when you see uh someone get sick or hurt on tv it makes that that whole like sick to the stomach feel yeah. or your body hurts that that Ugh. phantom pain type of deal. But I'm like having this, I'm like having this minor PTSD, you know, <laughs> as I'm watching this video and I can't stop watching the video either. No, of course not. <laughs> so I'm like reliving this entry in my head. And, you know, I don't know if I've ever told you this, Zach, but uh, this was like a huge misdiagnosed injury. Did you know that about my ankle? Yours was. Oh my gosh, no. Yeah, yeah so... When I was senior in high school, and I know, like, I, back in high school, I'm not trying to be one of those guys, but yeah. <laughs> this reminded me of this. And and so what happened is I had broken my ankle in the first day of contact in two-a-days. And I had continued to treat this ankle as if it was a sprain. But, like, I was in so much pain all of the time. Like, all the time. Yeah. And I was, I was determined to come back and play football my senior year. This was my senior year mm -hmm. and I didn't want to I didn't want to miss any games. And so things didn't really go well, I'm missing time, end up missing the first game. Mm -hmm. And so um so I'm still treating it like a sprain. And <clears throat> then what happens is I missed 3 games of the season. I missed 3 games of the season. I was all suited up and ready to play game 3. Dude, I remember and this. And so, anyway, here's here's what's happening. In the midst of practice the whole entire week, I'm practicing. I'm going through practice. I'm, like, practicing with, with first-team defense. Mm. All the meanwhile, I feel like there is a, a sword implanted from the bottom of my foot going up my leg, but I'm just playing through the pain because I want to play. And, you know, I'm thinking, ah, it's just a sprain. It's mm. whatever, right? Um, typical tough guy, dumb senior in high school move. <laughs> And I remember we hit a bag, and it was that bag hit drill. I don't remember what it was called, mm -hmm. but you basically you tackle a bag, you drive it, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I remember the first time I made contact with this dude, I, like, relived the pain 
of the first time I injured the ankle. And oh. I think to myself, uh, that can't be right. <laughs> oh. But I continued to do the drill. Um, and so anyway, I guess I was limping in the pregame. I was all suited up, ready to go. And then they made me sit out. And dude, I kid you not, to this day, I'm thinking if I would have played a full football game on oh. that on that ankle, I probably I probably dude, would have just there's totally no destroyed way. it. No way you could have even play a full game. I, I I almost guarantee I would have dislocated it or something oh, crazy. Yeah. Uh but I remember the following Monday I had gotten into the doctor to get another x-ray because the doctors had been calling my dad okay so my parents are divorced my insurance was under my dad's name and mm. because of hipaa stuff they couldn't leave a voicemail saying why they were calling back for four weeks they were trying to call for four weeks and so my my are stepmom you serious my stepmom <laughs> my stepmom is i guess ignoring the calls because she also worked at the place I had insurance. So she thought it was her work trying to get her to try to call her in to yeah, get her yeah. to go in on her day <laughs> off. So all the meanwhile, oh my God. I am, I am running, I'm practicing, I'm hitting things. I have a fracture in my ankle. And, and so anyway, I go get x-rays. It's like clearly fractured. And like I have a bunch of screwed up ligaments in my ankle. Ended up having to get surgery in the whole nine. Missed the whole season. But I'm still thinking to this day, like I am. I think that God was watching out for me mm -hmm. on that day I was called out of that game. Because I was ready to go. Oh, and, you were moments, moments before and, playing. And of course, you know, I'm... I'm thinking to myself, I probably would have played, but my coaches were probably noticing that I was like half speed at best. Yeah. They oh, probably yeah. wouldn't even have really put me out there. But dude, I just I'm thinking about it. If I would have gone out there, I, I'm just thinking my my ankle would have ended up like Dax or something like that. Something oh, bad would have totally happened. Horrible. <laughs> you know. Oh. Uh, but dude, anyway, did, man, did you, you ever see? Did you see the Dak injury? Oh yeah, dude. I live? was I was watching the no, not live. Uh, just the just the replay of it. Oh, I just heard about it. I didn't even see it, so I know he just injured his ankle pretty badly. So I didn't know it was like like super super serious. I know yeah, they you thought should, it was pretty rough. I mean, you can you can tell visually with his leg sitting there, you can see the dislocated ankle. Oh, that's like, the like worst, it's, dude. Oh, it's, it's that it's it's really that bad. Like it. Oh, I can't it, even like it, think about it because it. Uh, my, and when you watch. Like, when you watch the film of it, so so for anyone who's kind of freaked out about medical stuff, if this bothers you, just fast forward like a minute. But you can tell his ankle actually looks like it might dislocate on the on the cut. So he cuts upfield. Uh -huh. And you can see from the camera angle, his ankle looks like it's actually starting to roll and dislocate. Uh. In, and then he gets hit. And so then what that does is that just perpetuates that velocity, that momentum. And I think just totally just destroyed just his, annihilated. his ankle. And I don't know if he just had an extreme rush of adrenaline or what, but he tries to bang his leg on the ground and put it back into place. And I'm thinking to no. myself, oh, no, dude, that's the last thing you want to do is any more contact to that. But. Oh, anyway, that's terrible, dude. Anyway, have you ever had that happen? Have you ever seen something happen, like an injury happen, or something, 
someone get hurt and it yes. brings back pain you've felt before? You ever experienced that? Dude, not not pain that I felt. Because here's the thing. I have never been seriously injured. I think the most serious injury I ever had was in high school football. And that's when I separated my AC joint and I was out for like a week. And that was definitely the most intense pain that I've ever had probably 48 hours after the injury, but it kind of, it subsided by the time the next game rolled around and I like kind of just pushed through it a little bit and they built. Did your shoulder dislocate? No. So remember our other buddy, we both got hurt in the same game and our friend who used to be part of the trio. (laughs) So shout out. Yes. (laughs) So he he dislocated his shoulder that game, and I only separated my AC joint. So I made it out a little better with a less serious injury than he did because he was out the rest of the season, and I was only out a game. But I did see a ankle injury, a horrible, horrible ankle injury in Church League softball. And it was this guy, he was sliding into second base, and... He like, I mean, it's church league, first of all. So nobody knows proper form of anything. Like, unless you actually have played baseball in high school or college, which some people in church league softball did, but most people like watch it, like watch baseball and are just fans of it. And then they play church league. So no one has any form. So this guy's sliding in, in, a horrible horrible form like doesn't tuck his leg under doesn't really slide doesn't the tuck his leg what did he do he <laughs> just kind of dove with his oh, gosh. just like jumped with his feet both of his feet in the air <laughs> at second base and because he didn't slide really before he got to the base because you're supposed to slide into the base not onto the base he wasn't even sliding onto the base he was jumping onto the base and his left or what it would have been yeah it would have been his left ankle caught on the base with like his cleat and his whole body like his momentum just kind of carried himself over his ankle and you like i remember to this day vividly seeing that ankle just twist underneath his body and you heard it pop did you hear it oh (laughs) you heard it pop and Everybody, it, uh, everybody on the baseball field simultaneously just went, "Oh!" and then and then he started screaming, and that was so that was traumatizing, and he had to get surgery for that, and obviously he was out the rest of our season. <laughs> but yeah, for sure, dude, that was that was I I felt I've never suffered. I've rolled my ankle, but I've never suffered a serious ankle injury. But I swear, dude, when I saw that, I felt that ankle just rolling and like i think i even grabbed my ankle too because i was like oh my gosh like that looks horrible but yeah kids at home learn proper technique you know this that if he would have slid into the base tuck his leg under keep the heel up he would have been fine but he decided to jump into second and that's what happens so yeah Kids at home, as well as old dudes at home, even if you were an athlete in the past, if you are not regularly practicing those same moves, those same skills, your body's no longer used to it. Like those moves Mm. you used to be able to do back at whatever sport you played back in the day, 
even though mentally you might have the same competitive level, physically your body isn't conditioned for that anymore. And I've seen it happen a lot with like adult flag football leagues or like you mentioned adult softball leagues. Guys who maybe when they were younger had great athletic ability who think that just because they were able to do it 10, 15, 20 years ago that they can still do it. Your body even though you might be able to try to make those moves, mm-hmm. your joints, your muscles, everything is no longer conditioned to be able to deal with that because your your muscles will atrophy. And even if you're like a weightlifter, it, but you're not really getting that condition of using your body in certain ways, it's still dangerous. Like, yeah, yeah, you just got to be careful. Be smart. Um, just know at the end of the day, it's better to lose and keep your body, you know, <laughs> healthy than to win and be dealing with an injury that's going to take you twice as long to get through than when you were younger. Yeah. The mind, the mind stays young, but you know, the body, body gets a little older, man. So 100%. Like I used to play in this annual flag football game. Mentally, I was as competitive as anybody. And in fact, that was, that was really the only thing I brought to sports was, that's not true. I was pretty fast. I was pretty darn fast. Yeah. Um, you were, but what, what made me, what made me into a decent athlete was the fact that I had extreme mental toughness and I was fearless, like, Mm. yeah, (laughs) to to the point of where, you know, I almost played with a (laughs) broken ankle. Yeah. But, you know, I approached the same flag football annual game with the same mentality. And I'll tell you what, like I I show up and I do pretty good for a you know, 29 year old washed up, you know, defensive back running back. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, my body feels like it's made out of stone the next day. That's for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Dude, you're yeah, you're hobbling to work the next day. <laughs> What did you do? Oh, flag football. Flag football. Loser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, anyway, Zach, we got exciting words from you. I want to hear about the nightmare at the fair. Tell me about this, Zach. Go. All right. Nightmare at the fair is my debut novel. It is going to be coming out October 31st. That is the official release date. We're going Halloween. We're going full send with this thing because it is a middle grade horror novel. Um, it's, it's more of a scary story with some humor mixed in there. So it's not going to give your kids nightmares, but it's going to be a fun story. So I wanted to take some time today just to read the blurb on the back of the book just to give everyone a little teaser of what's to come. Also, before I get into this, I want to say that if anyone wants to subscribe to our newsletter, if anyone wants to head over to steelakestudio.com and go to that community tab and sign up for our new le- newsletter and subscribe to our newsletter, they can get, and this month I sent out a chapter from one of, or from my story from the nightmare at the fair. So you guys, that's some content that you guys get only on the newsletter. This doesn't come on the podcast or the website. This is only the newsletter. So if you wanted one more reason to sign up on steel Lake studio, hopefully that is it. So without further ado, here is the blurb of nightmare at the fair. It was supposed to be Chester Tallman's year. 
He'd grown three inches over the summer. His younger brother had stopped bullying him. Well, a little bit. And the Oakville Creek Fair was coming to town. There, Chester finally would conquer the scariest ride of them all, the death drop. But once again, misfortune follows Chester. When he learns he's still too short to ride the death drop, Chester will do anything to be taller. Little does Chester know, his dreams are about to come true. After meeting with the strange man called the Fantastic Nigel, Chester receives a bag of troll cookies. The Fantastic Nigel promises they will help Chester grow so big he will never have to worry about his height again. Once Chester eats the first cookie, the real nightmare begins. Chester is growing now. He's growing so tall that he can't fit in rooms anymore or even his house. And he's grow- and his growing won't stop. Chester starts to suspect that he isn't just growing. He thinks he's changing into something. Brave readers, open the first book to the Terror Town series and see what scares lurk on every page. So there you have it. A little teaser for a nightmare at the fair. I'm, I'm really pumped about this one. Um, it's very much in the vein of Goosebumps, which is our main title, our main topic for today. So hopefully today you guys will also know a little bit of the inspiration <clears throat> that is going behind my Terror Town series. That's what I'm calling it now. So this is just book one of many to come. They'll all be in the same kind of scary story, humor, vibe. Um, so yeah, man, excited. Really excited about this one. Yeah, this is exciting. Not just because it's your first book in a series, but this is this is like your first published book. And, and this is like a really exciting thing. Since I've known you, this is a big goal for you. And yeah. so I'm really excited about this. Not just because I, I know it's a great story and people will enjoy it, but but as your friend and seeing, you know, all of all of the strides you've made to make this happen, the amount of editing you've done, the work you've done, and just kind of knowing that you you are releasing a a really, really good story here after many that you've written and scrapped or put on the back burner, like this is the one <laughs> that you are releasing first. It's a good one. I yeah. think anyone's going to enjoy it. So I'm really I'm really proud of you, man. I'm really happy to be seeing this coming out and I'm really excited, Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, it is a it is a life goal. I think I said that to Leah today. I was like, once this thing comes out, this is a huge life goal that I've been thinking about and dreaming about for I don't know 26 or yeah, about 20 no. 16 years. There we go. Math's hard. 16 years. <laughs> there you go. But, Still, man, that's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. And it's it's something that I think anyone who picks it up, you're you're not gonna regret it. I think this is a great story. Like I've said before, parents read it to your kids, maybe you know, a little spooky story, great for the campfire. Like if you're a camp counselor or something like that, perfect. You know, yeah. this these are the types of stories that are for you because it's not too scary, but has the scary theme like if this were to happen to you mm-hmm. this would this would be a scary event but i'm yeah. looking forward to seeing what happens here sweet man well do you want to hop into our main topic since we are about a half hour into the show here we can get into yeah let's do it stuff let's do it man i am ready my body is ready <laughs> so we are <laughs> as we said we are doing goosebumps today and this this is going to be huge for me because Goosebumps, as we just discussed, has was and it still is a 
huge influence on the way I like to tell stories, the way I consume stories. It's it, it has a massive influence on me. So this is this is going to be fun to talk about. So let's get into the history, a little bit of goosebumps here. Uh, it is a series of horror books for kids written by R.L. Stein, which started in 1992 and published by Scholastic Corporation. Good old Scholastic, man. I hadn't doing Scholastic. the research. I hadn't heard that in a while. Like I, I kind of missed Scholastic. Yeah. Well, Scholastic has one franchise that really matters, other than Goosebumps, named Harry Potter, which is kind of a big deal. Yes. Yes, <laughs> dude. They. I also was looking at dude. They got like. They have Animorphs. They have mm-hmm. the Magic School Bus. I mean, they've got some some big name. Oh yeah, things out there. Big name uh, license. Yeah, Scholastic also does a really good amount. Obviously, it's going to be biased research, but they do a lot of good research that they post on their website about the benefits of reading, the benefits about having books in your house, why parents should have their kids read. So if you guys, obviously, if you're interested in Goosebumps, check out Scholastic. But if you're a parent or even someone who wants to know some information statistics and analysis on reading, you should head over to Scholastic's website. They do a bunch of research on the benefits of reading and they're cool. They're a cool company. That's awesome. So the original books for Goosebumps ran from 1992 to 1997, where, dude, get this, 62 books were published in those five years. That's mm-hmm. a little more than 12 books a year, man. That's, yeah, this that's dude nuts. is cranking out books. So for all of you people out there that kind of put the question mark up when they're thinking about indie authors and how indie authors have this reputation of just cranking out novels. They'll put 10 novels out a year and you're like, well, they can't be good quality. Cause it's like just it's quantity over quality. Well, RL Stein was putting out 12 books at least maybe more, maybe a little less some years, but he was putting on an average 12 books a year. So this dude was yeah. a, a machine when it came to writing these and it helps yeah. because the books are only like 23 to 25,000 words. So they're, they're thin, short, quick reads, and that's how he wanted them to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you know what the first book in the entire Goosebumps series is, Cody? You know, I do now, but going going into this, I actually, I had, um, I had thought for the longest time that the first book in the series was Monster Blood. Like, this is in my head. Like, I've thought this for years, and that's actually not true. No. And it's, um, it's what is it, Dead House? What's, welcome to Dead House. Welcome to Dead House. That's what it is. Yes. Uh, so, so I learned that doing research for this, and I had just assumed for many years that it was Monster Blood, and it is not. Hey, that's a fair assumption, though, because there are like four Monster Bloods. So you just figure they're sprinkled throughout and they would have started with Monster Blood. But Welcome to Dead House was the first one. And it was actually the first one that I saw on video before I ever read the book. So usually I would read the book and then see the story or see the like TV show or see the movie. But this was the first one that I saw the movie first and then went and read the book. And dude, the movie was so scary to me as like a 10 year old. (laughs) Like it's a creepy, creepy book, but it it was, it was a good one to introduce the series because it gave that, Hey, this is kind of scary and creepy, but there's a lot of goofy humor throughout and it's got a good twist. It's, it's one of the better twists at the end. Um, so 
R.L. Stein's theme, his his mantra, I guess you could say, when writing Goosebumps for all of his Goosebump stories, beyond Goosebumps, beyond Fear Street, everything that he writes, he wants to write scary books that are also funny. And I like that because that is what I try to do with some of my my kid friendly stories, my my middle grade mm-hmm. stories is I want to I say I want to scare the pants so you're off your kids, not give them nightmares like I just mm-hmm. want to have a fun time, let them know that it's not real. That's what R.L. Stein wants to do as well. He wants them to know, look, they're not in any real danger of actually dying. There's no drugs. There's no violence. There's no depravity. There's and there's no guns either. That was a huge thing for Arl Stein. He doesn't want any guns in any of the in the books. He wants it a fear a few uh, a pure friendly atmosphere in mm-hmm. the books. So when kids read them, they're not going to get any of this stuff in this crap that other horror genre, um, other horror stories and books and stuff can can bring to the genre. So. He wanted scary books that are also funny. And at Stein's peak, he could write a book in six days, which I thought was like, holy cow, that's that's impressive. I mean, hey, that's, granted, that's amazing. Yeah, they're shorter books, but still six days, less than a week. This guy is just he's he's pounding away at that keyboard. I got to give the guy's respect because he's he's made a lot of books. He's created a lot I- of books. I kind of want to speak to that for just a second that and with what you can talk about this a little bit more later in my lasting appeal, but the goosebumps kind of in their, their publication kind of are treated more. I shouldn't say treated more, but when you look how many there are, you would assume that it's, it's like a periodical versus, you know, children's novels. And I think Mm. that there's actually, I actually think that there's something to that as a publication strategy, because I remember when my brother was getting into goosebumps, I I can't remember if he was part of a a book club or whatever, but he started collecting them in the original run. And I remember it was, it was like a moment of excitement and anticipation when a new goosebumps book came out, because there is a period where there was a new one coming out every month and you could kind of look forward to it mm-hmm. every month. And yeah, sure, they're shorter reads, but for a kid, you know, that's exciting, right? Just like it was exciting to get a magazine, you know, it was, it's funny. I bet you there's a lot of our listeners who are younger who never had a magazine subscription, which is kind of funny to think about. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I remember just being so excited about my monthly magazines or, and I think mm. that there is, there's something exciting about that. We're so used to like content on demand, right? Mm. That it's just there when, when it's there. But I think eventually we find that thing that we're a fan of and we just eagerly anticipate that next entry. And I think that that fandom can wear off when there's too much time in between entries. What do you think about that? I think there's, I think it can wear off when there's too much time. I also think it can wear off when it's too frequent, when it's, sure, yeah. it's like you said, when it's on demand, you don't have that anticipation, that that excitement that just builds as you're waiting for the next issue to come out. And for me, I experienced this with Goosebumps. I also experienced it with um, some of my video game magazines. I would get them monthly, but I couldn't, What upon finishing one, I couldn't wait for the next month. And when I say I couldn't mm-hmm. wait, I could wait. And part of the waiting 
was that anticipation and I enjoyed it. Like I can still remember feeling that excitement building as it, as the days drew closer to when I knew the, the magazine would be released and get to my house. And I think you're right that it can, it can get lost. That excitement can get lost when it it's too long. Like if you're waiting an entire year for a book or maybe, I mean, classic case song of ice and fire, like game of Thrones, the book readers of game of Thrones have been waiting. I don't even know how long, a decade, maybe, maybe less Mm -hmm. than that for the new book to come out. And it needed a TV series, an HBO TV series to keep the hype going for the next book because people are, and we're still waiting for it. And I would, I would honestly say a lot of people aren't going to care when it comes out. And I know that's almost like heresy to say, but I don't think many people are that excited anymore. I think George RR Martin has missed his window and that's because he took too much time. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side of that coin, like I said, if you have content just on demand all the time, like a lot of these websites do, it's just, it's so saturated and you feel like you can't keep up. I think that's part of it too. Like you're, you want to stay on top of things and you want to keep up and know what the latest book is or the latest article or magazine and what it talked about. But if it's just too much all the time, you miss a few days and it's like, Oh my gosh, we're talking about something completely different now. And like, Mm -hmm. I don't care anymore because I'm still, three issues back. So I think for goosebumps, you're right. It had that serial feel to it that mm-hmm. every month you were looking forward to the, uh, to the next goosebump book. And I think also part of it, it felt like a collectible card game in a way, at least to me, yeah. because the, the, the illustrations and the covers were so awesome. They were so creative and eye-catching that it felt like you're collecting cards as well as reading books because you wanted to have all of the the goosebump books and all of their covers like the original covers so it felt like you were constantly collecting them but also anticipating further releases so i i mm-hmm. agree man i agree that if, if if too much time goes by you lose that hype but if if it, if it's too short, you definitely will still lose that that hype for whatever product sure. you're selling. Yeah, like franchise fatigue can can set mm, in. Yes, when, you just, when you're oversaturating it. Absolutely. And speaking of the illustrations, man, Tim Jacobus. I think I'm saying that right. It might be Jacobus. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure. I'm gonna go with the the hard J here, but. Yeah. Tim Jacobus was the illustrator behind the legendary Goosebump covers and. I think his illustrations were a huge reason why kids, especially young boys, wanted to read the books because they were just no doubt, so man. cool. They were yeah, so no cool. Doubt. They had that, they were reminiscent of what I'm sure R.L. Stein was reading when he was a kid because R.L. Stein said a lot of his inspiration for Goosebumps came from pulp magazines and pulp stories when he was a child. And then growing up, once you hit the 70s and 80s, you get a lot of these illustrative graphic horror novels and i you can see if you take a horror novel from the 80s and you compare it to a goosebump book the arts is very similar now the 80s novel if it's not a goosebump book it's probably going to be pretty horrific in some way but it has that same illustrative like colorful eye-catching cover that goosebumps has so i for me 
Huge reason why I was reading them because the mm-hmm. covers were so sweet. And so since the 90s, Goosebumps has had multiple spinoffs. I would say definitely 1992 to like 97, maybe a little into the early 2000s was Goosebumps heyday. Um, <clears throat> but it's 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 still going right now. It has had tons of spinoffs. I can't even name half of them because I never heard them. Uh, heard of them. I know Fear Street was one that was right after Goosebumps, and I kind of got into that. And I Arl Stein was kind of writing more for a little older crowd and some older kids, maybe around high school. Now, is he still authoring all of them, or are there ghostwriters? That is a great question, and I didn't find in my research if he has ghostwriters. So, okay, I don't know. I mean, if if he is writing all this, he is a insane writer because for sure this i mean there's so many series and they're not just like five books here and there these are substantial series of more than 20 books and they're we're on slappy world right now it's the latest one that's the one i could find about his uh main antagonist in a lot of the books called slappy he's a doll but Apparently, the new series is about him being the main storyteller and the antagonist. So it's an interesting take on his his character there. But mm-hmm. they're they're still running with him, man. And I think they're going to go until I don't know. I don't even know if Goosebumps will. I'm sure it will go away once Arl Stein passes away. But I until that guy dies, like there's going to be Goosebump books coming out. <laughs> so that, that's good for me because I love Goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. Um. It also spawned a television show on Fox Kids. Do you re- did you ever watch the Goosebumps show on Fox Kids? I definitely did. Yeah, dude, how creepy was the intro to the Goosebumps yeah. series? Yeah. Was, yeah, the intro is scarier than the actual story or the book being shown on television. Like, right? That intro is horrifying. <laughs> it's like the intro. Did you ever watch Are You Afraid of the Dark? Oh yeah. Yeah, like the intro to that scared me more than the actual show. So good on them because that's like it's eye catching. Like you, I yeah. would be even on like Sunday or Saturday mornings watching Fox Kids in broad daylight. I'd be like huddled up on my couch trying to just get through the Goosebumps intro so I could watch the the episode. <laughs> but the show was great. Um, it was definitely corny. I watched um, some clips on YouTube in order for or doing research for the show and dude it, it's painful <laughs> it's painful some of the corny lines i mean it's the 90s too so a lot of the slang and how kids talk is super outdated but yeah. it's also just it's corny at times i mean they're trying to do they're trying to do comp not i don't want to say complex because they're not ultra complex stories goosebump stories but they're trying to do more high budget stories in a television format before television had money like it does now to spend on right. like like a Netflix show or something where you're going to get real high quality even it's like junk you're going to get a high quality show that mm-hmm. wasn't the case back in the 90s <laughs> I mean it <laughs> it showed when you had a low quality show um yeah. in 2015 did you ever see the movie the goosebump movie with Jack Black I did not. I have seen parts of the second one, but that's clearly not uh, the same quality as the first one. No, I, I haven't even seen this. I didn't even know there was a second one until you just said that. But in 2015, I know there was the Jack Black one with 
him playing R.L. Stein. And I watched that one one afternoon and it was it was really good, man. It's it's funny. It's corny. It's very yeah, I've heard it was bumpy. pretty good. It captures the the essence and the feeling of Goosebumps very well. Like it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's got some good jump scares. It's got a nice little moral tied in there. <clears throat> um, but it involves and it, what's cool about it was that it involved a lot of R.L. Stein's monsters coming to life and just kind of wreaking havoc on this small town. Yeah. But you got to see a lot of your favorite characters from your childhood moving on on the big screen. So that was what the the big appeal was for this show. Um, Goosebumps has also sold over 400 million copies worldwide and is the second best-selling book series. Not just children's book series. Second best just book series behind the one and the only, and we've done this one already, Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Harry Potter, the king. It is it, it is beating um <clears throat> it's beating Goosebumps by a hundred million copies. I think Harry Potter's over five hundred million. Oh, you want to hear my hot take on Goosebumps versus Harry Potter? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's gonna make a lot of Potterheads mad. <laughs> I'm actually <laughs> I would be more excited to reread a Goosebumps book at this stage of my life than a Harry Potter book. Oh man. Wait, why is that? Only because I don't remember them as much. And they didn't oh, get okay. like the big movies and the super fandom. Like mm. we got just, I, Harry Potter was just so overdone. And can I just ask you this? Like, okay, it's 2020 and I saw an advertisement for a Harry Potter video game. It's like Hogwarts, like a hundred years before Harry Potter or whatever. Is there anything that excites you about a Harry Potter video game? <laughs> like... I have to be honest. I just can't. I can't imagine a video game of Harry Potter world being very exciting. Because okay, I'm I'm gonna make my you know my my caveman come out here. But it's just like what what's the what's the gameplay mechanic? There's really no violence. You're gonna work on spells and what? Just work on your enunciation. You're gonna speak spells into my. I don't know. I can't I can't think of what the gameplay loop would be that makes Harry Potter exciting. Great stories, awesome mm-hmm. stories, but why would you want to play a video game Harry Potter? Dude, apparently it's open world too. I know which one you're talking about. It's like an open world <laughs> Harry because that's a, that's the way all video games are going right now. It's like you got to do an open world video game. But what, what who cares about an open world? It's Hogwarts. I mean, the, okay, whatever. <laughs> Tell me more that you know about this. because Well, no, what I was going to say is I wasn't even excited for the Harry Potter video games when they came out when Harry Potter was at its peak. Like when you couldn't get enough Harry Potter, I didn't care about the Harry Potter video games. Nobody did. So I'm not going to care about a Harry Potter video game (laughs) 13 years later (laughs) whatever. Like. I still don't care. Now, hey, man, anything you set in Middle Earth, I will buy. You give me a sword, you throw some orcs in there. That's right. right. I I will slash away at some orcs all all day. Exactly. Kind of makes me sound like a a pretty uh, average gamer. It's like, (laughs) but it's, you're right. But the thing is, there's fighting, there's battles, there's wars. And okay. Yes, there was the war for Hogwarts, but come on. Like, it is not the same thing as a Middle Earth battle. 
And you're right. Like, I don't understand what the appeal of making potions and going to class class. (laughs) would be in an open world video game. (laughs) So what every kid wants to do, right? Like I just went through a day of school and then I want to go home and play school simulator. Uh, (laughs) The thing is this, it'll come out and we'll be completely wrong. Like we'll be playing it being like, this is awesome. I, you know, I, I'm willing to say that with game design and how people have made interesting types of games. Hey dude, I got, sucked in to Terraria, man. It's a game about digging in the ground. Like, <laughs> Oh, dude, I know. I, you got people, me sucked into that for a hot minute. <laughs> people who play video, who make video games, they know how to make games addicting, but like, I just, I don't know. Let's I mean, get back people, to Goosebumps. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we'll get off that train here. <laughs> We're going to hop back on the Goosebump train because I could, I could keep going with that. <laughs> So for the plot of we're going to move on to our plot here. And since you can't really just do a goosebump plot, we decided that we were just going to pick a few of the books that we loved and we would do a little plot summary of them, kind of talk about them a little bit because there's just there's too much to choose from. There's way too much to choose from. So I'll do one you want to do like we'll kind of go back and forth. Yes. Yes. So I don't talk the whole time. All right. So my first one, and the reason why this one is so special to me is because it's tied into my memory of my dad reading to me as a kid. So for parents out there that read to their kids and they might not seem interested or they might, you might think that they don't understand or whatever, like I promise you, like they're listening, they're enjoying that time because this book was that book for me. And so this was One Day at Horrorland and... I like this book for the f- the first reason I liked it is because the the cover is crazy awesome. It's like this look you're like looking down this road at this like shadowy amusement park and there's a sign on the right that says welcome to horror land and like there's this creature hi- like just kind of looking and peering over it and it's just like a c- creepy crazy looking creature. So it immediately caught my eye. I also like the color scheme of it. It's like this purpley and teal color. So really like the cover of it. But the reason why I loved the book is because this is one of the first books my dad read to me as in the Goosebump series and just read to me as a kid. And you might think, well, why would he read you a horror story? Well, it's not really that scary, first of all. it's It was inspired by... R.L. Stein's love of Disney and he wanted to write a book that was like, well, what if Disney had kind of like a darker side to it? And so all the rides and stuff at Horrorland are these over the top ridiculous rides that like try and kill people. But the kids in the book always find a way to get out because they're always outwitting everybody in all of the Goosebump books. They always outwit the the bad guy. Um, so they, this family goes to Horrorland. They're going through these rides and stuff and they start to realize, hey, this place is pretty dangerous. And so that's when the horrors come out and they're the creatures that kind of run the entire place. But they're these goofy creatures at the end of the day that are like, they always reminded me of if like Minnie and Mickey and Goofy at Disney could talk like the, the actual <laughs> like costume people could talk like, 
that's how I pictured them because they were just kind of these goofy, incompetent people that like mm-hmm. weren't really scary at the end of the day. So anyways, that's a brief summary of what, what Horrorland, One Day at Horrorland is. And apparently I read that there was a video game based off this book. And interesting. I can't really picture what a video game of One Day at Horrorland would be. Um, I, I guess you're just a person trying to fight your way through. I do know that in order to defeat Looks the like horrors, and click adventure. Is it game. okay? Because I was thinking, like, what, like, if it's a real time game, that doesn't really work. Well, maybe because I don't know what your objectives would be, but. I do know that in order to beat the horrors in the game, you have to pinch them because that's mm. how you defeat them in the book is they start. There's like, sign, it's so funny because there's signs all over the, the, the um, amusement park horror land that say no pinching, which like as a 10 year old, you're like, Oh, that's awesome. Like that's how you beat them. But as you grow older, you're like, why would they even put signs that say no pinching? If that's the way you <laughs> defeat the horrors that run the amusement park <laughs> you'd think they would <laughs> not put those signs up but you know it's a kid's book so whatever so one day at horrorland though i read this book or my dad read this book to me and i remember most about i mo- I'm more than any of the other ones i remember this one most because of that nightly reading that my dad would do with me and i do remember this before i finish up he he actually had a nightmare about one day at Horrorland. So I want to go on the record and say, I never once had a nightmare reading any Goosebump book. None of them. Not after reading or finishing any of them did I have a nightmare. But my dad did have one after finishing one day at Horrorland. He said said that he was on a bus going to Horrorland and he like was trying to get off the bus so he didn't have to go. And like he said, he was pretty freaked out by it. But I, I I remember asking him when I was like 10, I was like, well, did you remember to pinch the horrors? And he's like, no, I didn't remember to pinch the horrors. It was a, it was a dream. <laughs> like, I, I don't remember <laughs> that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So why, why don't you tell me one of your books here, guy? All right. Well, the first one on my list is the one that for the longest time I assumed was the first one in the series, which is Monster Blood. Um, and the thing that's so powerful about this story is this is probably, this is probably one of the first chapter books I read and, and I'll get into the initial impact when we get there, but basically monster blood is a story that, that revolves around this moral of playing with things that you shouldn't be playing with, right? When curiosity gets the best of you and it ends up having consequences, so basically this uh this this kid finds this jar of monster blood and and takes it to their house and they start playing with it and it's kind of like this ooze this goo right like like fun stretchy stuff that type of um like kind of like this putty fun fixture and they start bouncing mm-hmm. it around and and then the kid's dog takes a bite of the monster blood and then they notice that the the blood the monster blood which is this green ooze starts expanding and getting bigger and the dog starts getting bigger <laughs> and so it's kind of this story of like periodically day after day this monster blood is getting more and more dangerous the dog's getting bigger and bigger the danger just keeps building 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 and then you find out like at the at the end of the story that to the <laughs> that the, the cat is actually like this witch turned into a cat and <laughs> and has 
enslaved uh i can't remember if it's the boy's aunt or or somebody like the whoever that he was staying with mm-hmm. and and is in control of the monster blood and can summon it. and now it's like this big this big oozing goop right that's like eating houses and and i just remember this story vividly and and thinking to this day is like that's a story about you know when you should you start playing with something you know you shouldn't right you kind of mm-hmm. That curiosity, that childhood curiosity gets the best of you and it just kind of goes too far. And I feel like that's a theme of a lot of the Goosebumps books is like the unexpected dangers Mm. type of storyline. And I just remember that one. And like I said, I thought that was the first one in the series for a long time. And uh, I can still remember the cover to this day, the ooze coming down the stairs and the glasses on the yeah. doorstep, on the, uh, I mean, on the, on the steps and all of these, all of these covers I can remember vividly. That's actually a big reason why I picked the three I did is because like, I, I have the covers so well in my head, Yeah. Um, but, but go ahead and give me your second. Dude, I just want to pause on monster blood for a sec and just say that that's a classic goosebump twist where Mm -hmm. you didn't you definitely didn't see it coming because it's just so ridiculous at the end like yeah the cat is like a witch that like (laughs) there was no way you could have predicted that and he stephen king didn't write this like a an agatha christie or so yeah sorry rl Stein didn't write this like an agatha christie novel where you could you could kind of put the clues together and figure out like who done it or how they're gonna beat it or who's the bad guy is like the a lot of the twists and that's what goosebump was very famous for with the twist endings a lot of them came out of left field like they were just Mm -hmm. like you're like wait what (laughs) like that's creepy but that's also like there was no way we would have seen that coming like one day at horror land i forgot to mention the ending for that one but they get home in their car and they find out that one of the horrors like had ridden home with them by hanging onto the car and offers them two free passes to come back next year to horror land. And that was the the twist at the end. So mm-hmm. this kind of there, they weren't always scary. Some of them were just kind of like, Oh, okay. One more little like, Oh, but the one twist that I did love came at the end of how I learned to fly, which is my next book here and how I learned to fly. First of all, what I remembered most about this was the main character's name was Jack Johnson and not related to the singer whatsoever, even though growing up, I like to think, oh, this was how Jack Johnson got his start. But (laughs) Jack Johnson was the main character and how I learned to fly. And this one was an interesting story because it it had a bully. It had the main character who was always not, he was bullied, but he was also trying to one-up his bully. He was never, he wasn't like the, just the helpless victim. It was like he was always in competition with this other guy. And throughout the whole book, he's always slighted. Just, just He's always just slighted because the other guy is just slightly better than him. And so this book follows Jack, who finds a book in an abandoned house by a beach. And it was it, the book is about how humans used to fly. And so the book teaches you how to make this potion. And once he makes the potion, he is able to fly. And Jack thinks it's great because he's got this new superpower and everything. And what happens is he ends up 
somehow giving the book or the, his rival finds the book and learns how to fly as well. And I remember distinctly the ending. I'm going to ruin the ending here because it's such a cool twist ending. Um, but they they become famous. And it's one of the few horror or the one of the few Goosebump books where like the situation gets out of control to the point that other people notice. Because usually they're self-contained and like the kids are able to to stop the bad thing happening before it like an entire town or the entire population knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. But this one, they become famous. Both of both Jack and his rival become famous because they they're the boys that fly. And oh, so yes. at the very end, they want to see who is the fastest flyer. And so it's like this national news television thing and they're going to put it on all the TVs across America. These two boys are going to fly to this flagpole and back. And whoever comes back first is the best and they're going to get like a movie deal and they're going to have their lives just completely changed. And so once the race starts, his rival shoots off into the sky and starts flying towards the flagpole and Jack is still on the ground jumping and jumping. He's like, I can't fly. I can't fly. I can't remember how to fly. Like I'm not able to fly anymore. And so he loses to his rival in the biggest moment of his life. He could have had it all, could have had the girl because there's a girl throughout that they're both trying to impress. And so that's how, that's how it ends. And then you get to the Mm. twist and the twist is Jack was actually fibbing. He actually still learned, he knew how to fly. He just chose not to because he didn't want to live that life of fame and fortune and always have people watching him and, like he, he would never be a kid. And so the, it ends with Jack flying out of his bedroom window and he takes this nice little flight over town at night and enjoys it because he's like, I'm finally free of my rival. I don't have to worry about him anymore. And I also still know how to fly. Mm. So it's a great, it's a great ending. It's kind of like a, it sounds a little bit like a twilight zone type of ending, you know? Yeah, it really, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's definitely got those those roots there. Yeah. Okay, up for me. Number two. Uh, this is probably, I don't know if it would be the most well-known Goosebumps story, but I know for sure that this was probably the most played of the televised oh, yeah. episodes, or I don't know if it was a movie or just an episode of Goosebumps. Definitely the most famous one. The Haunted Mask. And this is when dress-up goes horribly wrong. Now, our main (laughs) character is... You feel for her because she's always getting scared. Her her brother's always scaring her and, and spooking her. And, you know, I can... I can feel bad for her in this because nobody ever really wants to be the person who gets spooked all the time and everybody laughs at. I actually I actually work with a guy who who scares so easily. He jumps at everything, man. Like you could turn the corner and he's there and he didn't see <laughs> out of the corner of his eye and, and, and <laughs> boop, spooked. Like right, like and so anyway, if, if he listens to this episode, he knows who he is. Love him to death. <laughs> But Manny spooks easy. And so, you know, I can I can understand. It's it's not an easy life. And 
you know, every once in a while, when the joke is always on you, you want to be able to get somebody back. And that's and that's what Carly wants to do. She wants to be able to be the one who scares somebody for once, wants to play a joke on her brothers. Mm-hmm. And she goes into this costume store. She's looking around. And see, here's what happens. You never go, never go into the room in the back. Like, never <laughs> go in the, like, just kids out there, never go to the room in the back. You, you know what I'm saying. Yep. You stay you stay out of the secret room. But of course, because it's a book, it's a story and it's horror, she goes into the secret room. Oh no. And then these are like extra spooky masks yeah, yeah. in this room. Like Dude, extra these are scary masks. Terrifying masks. Now, I'm gonna tell you, if you watch this show as a kid, like <laughs> this is a terrifying mask in, yeah. in this episode of the show. Okay. And like and, and another reason why I enjoy this one is I've read the book and seen the show, but but like just totally scary looking mask. Yeah. And so, so anyway, she gets the mask and, and then when she takes the mask, like all the other masks, like when she puts it on, like the other masks try and like chase her down. And I'm Mm -hmm. trying to remember what's, what's the catch. The catch is like the masks have to find like a true love or something like that. Or yeah, I think, it's like uh, they have to connect with another mask or something like that. Yeah, I do. I can't remember the ending. I just remember she can't get it off when she puts yeah. it on. She it, yeah, it does not come it off to her face or something. Yeah, once she puts it on, it doesn't come off. And then the other masks in the back of the store are oh. trying to attack her and like connect with her mm-hmm. as a mask because yeah. they're looking for a true love. And then she uses this plaster head. Her her mother or something was a sculptor. I don't know. Her mom had a plaster head. I don't know why. But anyway, she uses that to to fight Plot off device. the to, yeah a MacGuffin to to like stop the mask from charging her. She's able to. She's able to take off her mask, and then the story ends with her brother mm. coming in to her room and saying, hey, how do I look in your mask? And you just, you know, you imagine the brother there in the mask, and it's yeah. like, oh, no. Here we go but again. That, that is definitely a classic, and I, I for me, I can't imagine. I, I don't, maybe some of the slappy uh, maybe the the Night of the Living Dummy. Maybe that one's the mm-hmm. most famous, just because he's such an iconic character. But yeah. this uh, this story is 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 the one that was one of the really good ones. Dude, I think the Haunted Mask for me, also growing up, was far more famous than Slappy, just because okay. it was. I think the best of all the television show episodes. Mm-hmm. And just one of the creepiest ones because you can't, yeah. I mean, as a kid, imagine, cause we've all put on masks and stuff to do Halloween and you, you just remember how hot and sticky it would get. Like you just feel like you can't breathe after a while. Now think about, I can't get this off. Like I can't yeah. take this off. Like even now that gives me like some anxiety thinking about just being in a mask and not being able to take it off. And then it's right. And also makes her changes her personality too. So it makes her say things and do things that she doesn't really, it's not mm-hmm. her. It's not Carly Beth, but the mask is the one talking and it's got that like creepy voice. So mm-hmm. it's just that, that was definitely a good one. And actually to piggyback a little bit on the haunted mask, um, RL Stein said that he got the inspiration for this story when his own son had difficulty getting a mask off for Halloween that's when he got the inspiration to write yeah. the haunted mask. Yeah, I read about that. Yeah. So, inspiration comes from everywhere, people. It does, everywhere. 
everywhere. All right, so I'll do my last one here. And, dude, man, this one is... This one's right up there with One Day at Horrorland. I think One Day at Horrorland is definitely my favorite, but Attack of the Mutant is a very close second. And for those that know me, I like comic books. Um, I'm not a huge lover of comic books, but I really do like comic books. And I like superheroes. And this one is about kind of a new take on superheroes, especially for kids' novels. So... This one I read multiple times, and it is about a boy who is obsessed with the this mutant um, comic book. And so he goes to, he's supposed to go to a dentist appointment or something on the other side of town. And so he rides this bus to the other side of town, and the bus lets him off in front of the masked mutant. I think that's his name, the masked mutant's uh basically his lair and so he goes inside and just before he goes inside the lair he is scanned by this device that just kind of runs over him so it's like a scanner and when you first read it you're like huh okay that that was weird and then he goes about um his adventure inside the mass mutants lair he has to i think he has to like free someone at some point i know i'm doing a bad job of explaining this one should have looked at the (laughs) thing beforehand but it is it is basically like the mass mutant is a super villain and he the boy has to escape the mass mutant's lair Mm -hmm. and i remember the twist at the end because the twist at the end was so cool. And this is why I loved it so much. It was because of this. So he gets home after his crazy adventure. And there's a, there's a couple cool twists throughout the the story where he thinks the mass mutant is helping him, but then the mass mutant is actually bad. And so he learns a lot along the way, but once he gets home, he's cutting, I think a piece of cake, he's cutting a piece of cake and he slices his finger on the knife that he's cutting the cake with. And when he looks at his wound, it is not blood that is coming out of his finger, but it's ink, just like he's been put into a comic book. And so what you learn is that at the very beginning, when he's walking into the mass mutants lair, that scanner actually turns him into like an inked comic character. So Mm. the twist at the end is the kid actually turns into like a comic book character. Ah, Yeah, man, it was a good one. Yeah. It was a good one. So, the mass or the the attack of the mutant also has got a pretty sick cover. It's got this like yeah, Batman looking guy charging out mm-hmm. uh, at you. And the I remember the TV show one. <laughs> it was <laughs> it definitely they got some like chunky looking guy. Like this guy's not yeah. fit at all. Like I wish they would have gotten the rock or someone to do it but like the guy in the on the novel on the book is this ripped jacked looking dude like he looks like a superhero and then you the show is like this flabby overweight he looks like he got like he's got that dad bod he's got the dad bod he looks like he's been shoved into the suit rather than the suit filling him out so he's (laughs) it's like uh whatever but yeah attack of the mutant 
I know I didn't serve that one justice as much as I'd like to, but it's it's a good one. It's a good one. All right. Um I'm gonna I'm gonna round it out here and I'm changing it up a little bit with my third one. I actually okay. picked two that I thought were very good, and then I picked a third one um that I actually thought wasn't very good. And and so this is Werewolf in the Living Room. This is not part of the main series. This is part of series 2000. Yeah. And the reason why I point this out is I got it at a book fair because the cover was awesome. And this story didn't feel nearly as much like a Goosebumps story as the other ones did. It kind of is more of like this werewolf, like typical werewolf story. Mm. And where it's basically got a son and a dad who are trying to hunt down like this werewolf and the son believes in werewolves. No, no, no. The dad, it believes in werewolves and he's the sheriff of this town and he kind of gets like picked on for it or whatever. It's just kind of this strange story. Like to me, I remember reading it as a kid and being like, this doesn't feel like goosebumps. Mm. And it's just, it, and it kind of plays into what you were saying earlier of that potential franchise fatigue, or maybe you go on with the franchise so long to where your audience changes and your audience shifts. And I think that that's one thing about goosebumps that we kind of learn is that even though R.L. Stein wrote so many books over so long, he probably had this awareness about it that his audience, these weren't going to be books that people continued to read into their you know 20s and 30s maybe some did right just just out yeah. of the enjoyment of them but his target audience was always to kind of be that middle grade reader and try and offer something that gets kids excited about reading and at reading werewolf in the living room i felt like at that point i just didn't relate as well as i did to the earlier books mm. and i remember that's kind of like the first time as a kid that i read a book where i was like oh you know that was just okay um because hmm. most of the times you get through a book and you're like oh man that was so exciting that's amazing like you ever realize that like books you, oftentimes when you get through a book it's kind of hard to be a a tough critic of it because especially if you make it to the end you at least liked it long enough to get yeah. to the end and it's hard to be a super tough critic on it because you have this actual personal investment of it of your time mm -hmm. and kind of analyzing as you go but um, yeah it's kind of like a little side topic but definitely i feel that with uh the eye of the world by robert jordan do you ever read that fantasy novel I've started it many times. Yeah, it's one of those where like it's a I mean it's it's hailed as just this epic and it is. It's like 15 or 16 books long of this fantasy opera basically. And I feel like fantasy communities all talk about it in such like a like in reverence. They're like, "Oh, the eye of the world is because it's the first one and in the the what is it? The uh Wheel of Time series." Mm -hmm. And I remember I finished it and I was like, ah, I kind of like, I liked it enough, like you said, to get through it, but I'm, I'm good. Like, I don't have to keep going. This is, this was just like, okay. How recent was this that you finished this? Oh, this was like a few years ago. I finished okay. it. Yeah. I hadn't, it wasn't that recent. I just, it, it was one of the few books that it was hyped 
a lot to me and the series was hyped up a lot because it's anytime you look up the top fantasy book series, it's always in the top five and it's what inspired Brandon Sanderson to go and write his um, like Oathbringer or whatever it's called the way of Kings in that series, mm-hmm. the stormlight archives and stuff. So I was like, this is going to be good. And it just, it's, it's very tropey to me. I, 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 I hesitate to say that because like, I know there's a lot of fans of the series out there, but it just didn't seem like anything new to me, but it was interesting enough world that I I was like, I'll, I'll keep going with it. But knowing that there's 14 books ahead of me now, (laughs) I was Mm -hmm. like, eh, I'm going to call it quits here. It's a huge life investment. And like, I don't know how many people we have who listen to this podcast who are epic fantasy fans. And I've talked about epic fantasy a lot as well. But I think there's something there's something to obviously the world building that makes these fantasy stories awesome. Mm-hmm. But there's also something to a story that reads well, reads at a good pace, and you can get through it and really get that same affect that same connection that you could as if you read through a 500 600 700 plus page book and i've started to kind of gauge stories on if i were to sit down around a campfire could i tell this story in the same way in the same powerful way and i think if you can and you can adapt it to that it's like wow that's just got a wide appeal Mm -hmm. but if you can't then it's like well this is really niche like Epic fantasy requires people who really like to sit down and spend a lot of time in front of a book, you mm-hmm. know? And I think it's just so daunting. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know. For me, I, I love fantasy and I love fantasy world building, but I know I've said it before. I just like it to move a little quicker. Mm-hmm. And this is me as a huge fan of Lord of the Rings, right? Not necessarily the fastest moving novel, but I don't need every book to be like that you know <laughs> right and i i agree i think i want to be and i think everyone who reads fantasy wants to be that person that does want to just spend that much time in books or at least that much time with a series to really get to know the characters to really dive into the world to get to know the nuances of it but at the end of the day once you're halfway through the first book of a even a 10 novel series you start to think, oh, this is going to be a while before I, I'm even yeah, halfway. For sure. And that's kind of how I felt when I was reading the first book of the Wheel of Time series. It's just, this is good. I can see, I want to be that guy who reads it all because I think that's a huge accomplishment. I think just as a reader to read the entire Wheel of Time series. But do I want to do it just to say I read it or do I want to do it because I actually enjoy it? And I think at the end of the day, I'd rather read books. I actually really enjoy and really get into like goosebumps than wheel of time or the Malazan of the fallen or whatever that other one is. That's like a, a big Epic series. Um, I'd rather just, you know, read books that it, I enjoy to read and yeah. I, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, Goosebumps, I still enjoy to read. I mean, even like Harry Potter, I know we were kind of teasing on it at the, you know, before the main segment, but I think for fantasy and all of that, the length of those, I I prefer much more to like Wheel of Time or 
um oh my goodness i read a the a couple of the sort of truth books oh and yeah holy cow Dude, <laughs> i remember you did writing yeah. keeps writing uh no they're not bad i mean it's it's it, it's fine uh, they're pretty good i mean i'm they are very good books right mm-hmm. but it just might not be my thing but you know it's just it's one of those things where i think that's that's where i think harry potter is good and even though it's like a more target audience of children i mean it's just don't long books you know yeah but uh, it's a much more manageable length i think because mm-hmm. Harry Potter was also aesthetically meant to look a lot longer than they are. Um, yeah. I think yeah. to make kids feel like they're growing up and reading big books. But Big books. Yeah. All right. Let's get into our initial impact here, man. Let's Why do don't it. you tell me what Goosebumps was like for you when you first started reading them? Sure. Uh, the best way for me to to talk about this is just kind of tell the story about about how I got into Goosebumps. So my brother, my older brother, was a collector of the series, and he is five and a half years older than me. So when Goosebumps started coming out, I would have been one or two, and my brother would have been six, seven, eight. And so he was like the perfect age to start getting into that reading and i remember my dad being a huge fan of horror and monsters it just seemed like a match made in heaven right my dad bought these books for my brother he would read them and we just had the whole collection of them i don't know exactly how we acquired them but i just remember as long as i could kind of remember our house bookshelf we always had it it was on the bottom shelf the whole collection of the Goosebumps books. And I remember what I would do is when I finally was old enough to kind of read chapter books, I would sit down in front of the bookshelf and I would just sit there and I'd go through all of the covers. Hmm. I would look at them and I would just imagine to myself, what could happen in this story because of this cover? And, you know, as I was thinking about this through, through and preparing for this episode, really a good book cover is equivalent to that of a really good movie trailer Mm. or something that's trying to get you to invest the time in and holy cow there's really no there's no better book series that does it than goosebumps goosebumps with the mix of title and what's on the cover just serves as this perfect trailer and proposal of kind of what to expect from the book but also kind of teasing a little bit because once you get through the whole entire story and reach the conclusion you're like oh okay so this image makes a lot more sense Hmm. and i just like if you compare and and i know you did a anyone who's interested you should check out uh zach's blog post from a, a couple of weeks ago that he did on book covers and talking about harry potter and hmm. and just the power of cover art is something I think just is really true about Goosebumps. And I remember I would go through and I kind of rank them based on their covers. And that's how I decided which ones to, to read. But I remember the reason why I read Monster Blood first is because my brother specifically told me, this is the one that you have to read first. Mm. And I just remember some of the covers. I remember loving the cover to say cheese and die. Yeah. Um, of the skeletons cooking out. Yeah. Uh, and having the barbecue and there's a bunch of skeletons and they're grilling. I just, that, that image is stuck in my head. Another one is the night of the living dummy, right? You got slappy, uh-huh. that iconic character kind of sitting on the end of the bed or, or the chair. And 
I remember that being an iconic cover. I'm trying to remember um, some other ones off the top of my head. Obviously, the haunted mask is there because that's a story I know so yeah. well. But yeah, it just it it made me just really want to invest in figure out what does this cover mean with this story. And I just remember going through as a kid and just spending time just sitting in front of that bookshelf going through the covers. And I know it might sound weird, like, why don't you just pick them up and read them? But I remember just as a kid, like, this was important. It was important to really, like, judge all of these books by their cover, even though we're not supposed to do that. We yeah. definitely do. And. Oh, yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I just really enjoyed it. And I remember, like I shared last week, I, as a kid, I was, I was scared of, of horror. Like I remember, like these Goosebumps shows, they would kind of scare me a little bit, but I'd still watch them. Are you afraid of the dark? If you couldn't get through an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, you're kind of lame. So, so I, I watched that as well. But the books never scared me. Never got nightmares from the books. Like I, and I think that's kind of something that the in you know the mental side of horror like you can be scared while you're reading something but when it's kind of in your mind and, and you're not getting that same visual connection i think it's just a different type of scary yeah um where you can kind of be scared of circumstances rather than being scared of something you're actually witnessing if that makes sense but yeah. anyway, that's kind of my initial impact of, of Goosebumps, just sitting there in front of that bookshelf for God knows how long at a time. Mm. Just kind of going through those books. All, all I think we had up to number 39, if I can remember correctly. Dude, that's awesome because it's very similar how I stacked my bookshelf at my house. But I ranked them by the scariest book. So that's how I, I ranked mine and how I got my shrunken head was first on my shelf, not because it was my favorite book or because I really even remember much about it, but it was the scariest looking cover <laughs> of all the goosebump books in my head because it's, I didn't, it was just like that tiny green head with the little black ponytail sitting on like the kid's desk surrounded by there's they had like a university pennant in the background i remember that and there was like uh, it's just it was a creepy creepy title or cre creepy title and also a creepy cover but for me my love of goosebumps started with my dad reading one day at Horrorland, as i mentioned earlier in the show and from there i just couldn't get enough of the covers and the the stories of Goosebump. I just it got me into reading. And I think partially why it got me into reading is because a my dad would read them to me. So anytime I would get a new Goosebump book either at the book fair or the library, he would read it to me. And so it was just that that connection to my dad as a kid because I knew, hey, if I get this, he's going to read it to me. And he enjoyed reading them to me and, and legitimately enjoying the stories as much as he enjoyed reading to his son. So we, ha I have that memory very early on in my life. Um, but I also loved goosebumps because it started, I think it was the first thing that really started getting my creative juices going. Um, it wasn't until holes that like later on in middle school that I was like, I want to be a writer. I want to do something like this. But I think very early on, this gave me a lot of ideas of what 
stories could be because like you said, like they're not scary per se. The situations are kind of freaky at times, but they're not terrifying. They're just like, the, like Steve or like Arl Stein kept saying, or keeps saying like, I want to write stories that are scary, but funny. So you got those elements. So kids aren't getting freaked out. They're having fun. And I think early on, as a kid, I felt that because you would get through these novels and there'd be some really scary parts. And then the twist at the end of the chapter would lead into something goofy at the beginning of the next chapter. And R.L. Stein was a master of doing that. And I owned all of these books. I owned all 62 of them. And I actually had a couple cassette tapes as well. And my favorite cassette was shocker on shock street did you ever read that one remember that no. one? Oh, dude super freaky cassette because you got the whole like audio experience of like the the goosebump music playing and it was just it was a drama oh, like an audio that. yeah the cover you'll remember yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty good but this the twist at the end always freaked me out and it really scared me as a kid because the end, the two kids that are in it end up being like robots at the very end that are just kind of going through this set. They're testing out a uh, like a shocker on Shock Street, which is like a fictional TV show or something. They're like testing out this new ride or whatever. And the kids are robots that get like turned off at the end. And that freaked me out. <laughs> I was like, I remember lying in bed hearing the the ending to the cassette tape and that happens. And I was like, I am not going to sleep tonight. Like <laughs> I will right. not be sleeping for many nights. So I think, but that's not because the story was scary is it was, I think the, the, my mind, my imagination going coupled with the actual audio of, of the book. But I did, that right. was like a very early memory of goosebumps for me. And but it didn't stop my love for him. Didn't stop my love because every year I couldn't wait for the book fair to come and get more Goosebump <laughs> novels and build my collection because I couldn't buy one every single month because they were coming out so fast. But I would go to the book fair with my money. My parents would give me and I'd stock up on all the ones I didn't have. And Stocking I think up. Yep, at the very end, I did get all of the original series Goosebumps. I did not get too into series 2000 or Fear Street. Um, I think like it was what you're saying. The reason why I didn't get into those is because I didn't like the covers as much. I, mm -hmm. I was super into the original Goosebumps series because the covers were so good. And it's a testament to, I think it's a testament to marketing can trump the content at times and as you i mean if you go back Especially and read, in the 90s man like yeah in the 90s for sure yeah because you could go back and read it now and there's actually a, a really funny website that i read or i used to read i don't read it as much anymore but it was um i think it's like reader beware or something and it was like it's a website that goes through all the goosebump books and it kind of po it pokes fun at them because the the stories are sometimes so ridiculous and so unbelievable. You're like, what the heck? This is this is a bit crazy here. And so this this blog makes fun of 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 the books and in good in good 
humor though like it's not just shredding them apart but the the blog kind of points out kind of how bad some of the stories are and you don't really remember that as a kid because you remember the cover being so cool and so interesting that it does kind of cover some of the sins of the story even no matter how ridiculous it gets and so i think all that to say, I think it's a, I think for me, the reason why I didn't continue on with Goosebumps was because the story had to carry the the novel after the original artist was done. So once you got into series 2000 or Fear Street, you didn't have that popping cover. You had just kind of a normal, especially in the early 2000s, covers started to change again and mm-hmm. all the covers started looking the same, just as any other book, like you can differentiate really a, a Goosebumps novel in the late or mid 2000s than a, a romance novel because they're all kind of doing the same styles. <laughs> now that's an extreme example, but what I I'm love saying, the example. But it's just, could you imagine a kid thinks he's <laughs> in the Goosebumps book? <laughs> like, wait a minute. <laughs> Mom, <laughs> what is this? What are they doing? There's words in here I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but so once again, that, that could go, things could go wrong there if you if yeah. you are marketing to the wrong the wrong group of people. But absolutely, if you're if you're writing romance <laughs> and ten year olds are picking up your books, yeah, you might want to doing something wrong. Pick it up with the marketing team there. Yeah. <laughs> But that's why I didn't get into the other ones is because the covers stopped being cool. And so I kind of just stuck with the original Goosebumps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so why don't you tell me about the lasting appeal for you, man? How is Goosebumps still in your life or around your life now? Well, like we've talked about, you know, the covers will always be visuals in my head. But I think as far as goosebumps goes as far as lasting appeal obviously these are iconic horror stories of my youth and childhood and the haunted mask will be a story whose plot line will probably be with me until i start to lose my memory you know like was it someday when i'm old and gray and i forget Mm. everything um you know this is this is just the type of plot where it resonated with me like wow that would be really horrifying if a mask gets stuck to your face you can't get it off and you're getting you're you know attacked by other masks (laughs) it's just scary and so that that will stick with me but but one of the things when and this kind of will sound like a little bit of business plugging here but when you and i talked about starting steel lake studio we kind of wanted to go about storytelling in a little bit of a different way Hmm. and with knowing that goosebumps kind of went with this regular periodical publication of getting a book out every month kind of gives me evidence to a idea i've been tossing around in my head for a while is do we just make books too long because they have to fit this you know novel criteria Mm. is it potentially more i shouldn't say more powerful but could you potentially reach more people or have a wider audience if you release your series over maybe more installments but shorter 
length because I think one of the biggest things to keeping people from reading is the length. And I think as time goes by, there's going to be less and less people who are really interested in picking up a 50,000 plus word novel, even though to you and I, 50,000 words doesn't seem like much at all. Mm -hmm. But to somebody who's not really a reader, that's like, oh gosh, this. Well, I'll just go watch a YouTube video, right? Right. And so, is there power in shorter publications, shorter um, series, shorter books? I don't know, right? But it shows me at least with goosebumps, it worked for this particular series and this particular genre to this mm. particular demographic at a certain time. So it's worked before with other things and. Is there a way that it could work in the future going forward for some of the demographics we want to hit? And so as far as lasting appeal goes, I'll always remember the stories that I know, but also it'll be something that I will want to further research as far as you know business development goes and marketing and all of that. So, yeah. Mm. Definitely something to think about there, man. I think that... I th you're right. I think that it'll be interesting what happens with audiobooks because mm -hmm. the people that are intimidated by thicker books won't be able to see that anymore because they're just going to see the time it takes on audio. And it'll be interesting to see how serialized things or how frequent publications go about doing business once audio really starts taking off, especially in the indie realm. Once, once costs are getting cheaper, once uh, indie authors are able to access professional recording and like professional voice actors for like a reasonable price, it'll be interesting to see what becomes of that. Because I think the indie authors do that. I think the indie authors are like, I'm going to, I got to crank out volume. I got to put out a book a month, just like, just like R.L. Stein did but they also don't have the cover art of an R.L. Stein book and they don't have right. like the speaking engagements and the tours like R.L. Stein had. But right. I think, I think you're right that for a specific market, there is that marketing strategy of like, let's, let's go frequent and let's make it look cool. Yeah. And, but yeah, I, for me, um, goosebumps, inspired me to continue reading and it it led me to to my favorite that Stephen King. So R.L. Stein took me to Stephen King and so I have Stein to thank for that because Stephen King is my favorite author. Um and there was a funny quote. So I took a master class by R.L. Stein over the early months of COVID and he said at one point in this master class that he told King that people consider him, R.L. Stein, to be the push-up bra of Stephen King novels, to which Stephen <laughs> King replied, I know. <laughs> I, I always enjoyed that quote <laughs> because it's very true. It's very like kid-friendly, and then you get to Stephen King, and you're like, holy cow, Like this is what <laughs> horror and depravity are. <laughs> so... It, it it led me to Stephen King. I enjoy Stephen King, but I also like returning to my roots with R.L. Stein and having a little more like cleansing of the palate. Yeah, after reading a little levity is nice, yeah. you know? Yes, yes. So it also inspired me. Um, it's the reason why I'm writing my Terror Town series right now. Um, it's 
been a big influence. I've always wanted to tell, and I've always been drawn to horror. We kind of talked about that last episode, why I like horror. And R.L. Stein summed it up best for me as well when he talked about just the reason he writes horror stories and not other stories for kids is because he wants to show children triumphing over evil or he wants to show kids outwitting a bad guy and it empowers kids to know that and it's fun for a kid to read like oh look this person this kid this kid my age outsmarted slappy or this kid my age overcame like the evil mask so it's it they're always good stories even with the twist endings those are just fun at the end because they really don't do too much to the story um right they're just there for an added flavor but the actual stories always had kids overcoming something and for me that's the message one of the messages i want to send with my terror town series is like kids overcoming stuff or kids learning lessons through things. And I think doing it through that genre allows me to explore some fun things that I find interesting, but also allow me to write an interesting, suspenseful, fast-paced story. Um, And there are also books that, like Goosebumps are books that I look forward to reading to my kids. One day, I have all of them, so I will, or at least all of the original ones. So I will be going through those with them. But I will say I even read Goosebumps now. I'll I'll pull it out every now and then. And I mean, you can read an entire Goosebump novel in like an hour. They're, they're very, very quick. Uh, but I will still pull them out and, and read them every now and then just because they're fun. They're just goofy. They're fun. They're, they very much are like pulp novels where it's just a fun story. And Stephen King even said, or Stephen King, I keep calling him Stephen King. R.L. Stein, I apologize. R.L. Stein even said that he never really thought about the moral of the story beforehand. It just kind of would happen throughout. But I think that just, that's kind of natural when you write kids stories because you naturally want to write them doing the right thing into the story after they, you want to write them doing the wrong thing at the beginning. So your reader knows this is what you don't do. And these are the consequences of doing the wrong thing. But here's the kid doing the right thing at the end. And this is why he gets free. So I think that's just the natural structure, especially of a kid horror novel that you, when R.L. Stein would write it, it just, it would happen. Now here's, here's what I'm going to ask you. This, this kind of has to do with goosebumps and Stephen King and then your own horror stories. Like, if you were to sit down with a parent who's somewhat apprehensive to let their kids read a horror book and they're just like, Oh, this is just, this is just evil. This is evil. Gross. What would you tell a parent as to why you think it's valuable? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I would probably start with just the fact that you want your kids first to not be completely jaded with the world. Like you want them to know that there are bad things out there, but you also want them to know you can overcome those bad things by being a good person, by doing the right things. And within those themes of being a good person and doing the right things, there's a bunch of other things on 
Like, how do you, how are you a good person? How do you do the right thing? Like you can explore all that in a novel and especially a horror novel where the danger is immediate. It's, it's, it's tangible. You can see it. It's not ambiguous, like, like racism or something like that. Like you can actually see the evil person in a, in a horror novel. And I think having a kid read that they can recognize what something bad is and what the good is to overcome it. And for me, doing kids novels and what I would tell a parent is this is, this isn't just blood and gore and guts and violence and senseless violence. It's not that it's, it's, good overcoming evil it's it's the human strength overcoming something that they didn't think they could do and i think you can see that very prominently in a horror novel and i think it sticks with kids more so than maybe a fantasy novel because fantasy they're gonna they're gonna want to like there's so much going on with the magic and the world building and the characters, like at least in a horror novel, it usually takes place in a modern setting or in a setting that's very familiar. So you don't have to do much world building and it's, it's, it's readily available to a kid. And so all that to say, I think it at the end, it, the argument boils down to this horror shows a classic example of good versus evil and what you can do to overcome that evil. Mm-hmm. I like that. And, and, and you know, the reason I ask that is, you know, I've talked about it on the podcast before. I've got a background as a as a youth pastor. And so books like Goosebumps, Harry Potter, anything to do with whatever witchcraft, magic, all this stuff, Stephen King especially. <laughs> you know, these these are things where I've had to have conversations with parents of no matter what your value system is, there's there's value to be found here. I remember when I was in college, I got my undergrad in pastoral studies. There was actually a class at Bible college, right? of of the values of monsters in literature hmm. which i thought was great you know that's that's a great perspective to have because i actually think monsters horror all of that is a perfect way to embody and show and illustrate you know evil and and obstacle right mm-hmm. because because you are able to embody the things that scare you while being able to be pretty non-offensive, right? Yeah. Um, and show how you overcome that obstacle. And and I think a lot can go on in someone's imagination with mm. that, you know, in the story. And so, so, you know, I think that that's one thing too, where horror adds value. And I don't know, you ever, you ever come across somebody whose parents wouldn't let them read Goosebumps or obviously we all know the kids who weren't allowed to read Harry Potter. But. <laughs> yeah. And I, I used to be the kind of person who would tease him for that. And over the years, probably the last few years, I've come to the decision. That's not a good way of convincing someone of something. And it's also Mm -hmm. just like, they know, they know, like they know it was probably silly. And as they got older, they probably read it or saw the movie or whatever. And was like, this isn't that bad. Or at least definitely not as bad as my parents made it out to to be so anymore i just when i hear that i go well like have you read it now and if they say no i 
encourage them to do it because I try to talk about themes of it then. And I try to paint it in a picture that's not like conservative versus liberal. It's more like this is like Harry Potter's about friendship, like the value of friends and Harry will do anything for his friends. And yeah, there's magic and witchcraft and stuff happening in this universe, but at its core, it's about friendship or with goosebumps. It's like what we were talking about on the podcast today. It's like, it's about, uh, it's about doing the right thing. It's about, you know, like playing with something you shouldn't and the consequences of that. Like that's how I approach it now. So yeah, I still come in contact with those people. And I think I always will, especially because of the genre that I write in. I'm sure, sure. eventually yeah. I will get some mom or parents yeah. being like, why do you write this stuff? And it's like, uh, because it's, it's real. <laughs> this is yeah. what, this is what real life is. I think Stephen King said that one time someone uh, wrote into him and it was like, why do you, um, or why do you swear so much in your novels? And he says, because people swear like people do that in real life. And that's just how people really talk, especially in really pressing terrible situations that they have no idea what's going on. You're probably going to hear a swear word. So Mm -hmm. I, I would tell them it's real life. There you go. All right, man. I appreciate that. That was awesome. Yeah. All right. Let's close out here, man. Let's wrap it up. Getting close to that two hour mark. So why don't you tell me what, what media, what stories are you consuming? Well, I've been watching the show Vikings. You ever seen it? Um, ooh, is that the serious one or is that the funny one? That is the serious one. Okay. I have not seen that one. Okay. So it's a show called Vikings. It ran on the History Channel for a while. I think it's still ongoing. Uh, back dated in 2013. Obviously, this show heavily rode the coattails of the success of game of thrones and you know the uh realistic fantasy was you know kind of uh or the grounded historical fantasy type of thing kind of had an audience and dude i gotta be honest man like this is a good show this is a this is a very well done show mm. i think that the storytelling is done well the only downfall of it is i can't get my wife to watch it with me one thing i will say about the show is that um, it, it, it was on the history channel. So this is, this is not like a TV MA show. This is a TV 14 show. And so, so like, you're not talking about having to deal with some of the serious graphic stuff that you would have to deal with in like an HBO type of show. Yeah. And, and so there was a couple scenes that kind of hinted at and alluded to some, some rape that happens you know, with these Vikings early on in the show. And that really kind of turned my wife off. And she's like, God, I just can't do this. It's just, I, I don't like being in this headspace watching this show. And I was like, God, bummer. Mm. And so this is the first time I've watched a series, a show, um, kind of solo without, without watching it with my wife. And I, I've mm. got to be honest, man, I've been married for eight years and it's weird. It's weird. Like it's hard for me to get into it, you know, like, huh. Anytime I sit down and watch an episode, I'm like, well, you know, I should probably be spending time with my wife, right? And mm. and so, you know, it's it's kind of hard. I don't know if you've had if if you deal with this at all, but like, um, it's weird to sit down and like watch a show solo when you're just so used to watching every show or movie with your spouse. Hmm. Uh, so so it's been kind of weird. But Vikings is a great show. It's very well done. Uh, the storytelling is good. 
I also like from episode to episode, they're not as concerned with it having to be a direct pickup where the last episode leaves off. They mm. actually do kind of a lot of time jumps in between episodes, maybe a couple of weeks, a couple of months, um, huh. never, never like a couple of years, but I kind of like how that's, it's, it's hitting the major points of this character's history that they want to hit rather than being like, all right, well, let's just make a serialized version of every single thing that happens. I like, I like how they're going about it. So basically premise of the show, Ragnar Lothbrok, he is a historical figure who is known for being the guy who kind of started the Viking raids of uh, England back in the, I think, ninth century and kind of being the pioneer of, of the Viking raids in the West. And uh, it's, dude, it's pretty good, man. Uh, it deals with, uh, the last few episodes have been dealing a lot with the topic of religion and faith. And I would say that it is one of the more tasteful ways that modern media deals with faith and some of the ambiguity of it, um, hmm. which I find to be very interesting. And so from my personal worldview, I'm like, this is, this is interesting. And I think a tasteful way to go about talking about religion and faith on a television show. So nice, man. Me. Nice. I, uh, I do want to make one note on, on watching shows separately because Lee and I will, will watch shows before we go to bed, but mm-hmm. I will say it's cool to hear that. Like you guys watch every show together because there are shows where I know Leah just, she's not going to like it. And she knows that she has shows that I know, like she knows that I'm not going to like. So we do watch a couple shows just by ourselves because I have no interest in watching like how to get away with murder. And she has no interest in watching like the boys, which is what I'm going to be talking about here soon. Oh, but, no interest in the boys. Oh, yeah. man, it's so good. Dude, it's the boys. So I'll, I, to close out, I think that's cool. We do watch our own shows, but I've only been married coming up on three years. So I'm one copy behind you. I will add to that statement is Haas, my wife, watches a lot of shows without me while I'm like working in here or, you know, writing, doing whatever. Yeah. Uh, so she watches a lot of shows without me. So she's like, she's not really put out by it. <laughs> it's just you. But uh but for me, like it's just it's my personality. If I if I'm gonna watch something on a TV, I kinda like to do it alongside yeah. my wife. No, I get it. I get it. But tell me about what the boys, man. The I'll, boys, man. So I I started watching this show the other night and I had heard about it. I heard about it. I heard it was a great show it was a new take on superheroes and i'm kind of in this i'm kind of in this headspace right now man i'm in this phase of my life where i'm just kind of done with superheroes i'm not really excited about phase four of marvel i'm not really looking forward to anything that dc is going to put out because they haven't shown anything up until now but i i was like okay i will give this superhero show a chance because I heard it's a different take and I know it's also based on a graphic novel. So usually things based on graphic novels are hit or miss. This is a definite hit. This show is so good, so good. And not just in the sense that 
like it's a cool story or interesting story. It's it's the way the story is told at times. There's a lot of double meanings to things. There's a lot of visual representations of characters. So they'll be doing something or they'll be looking at something and it represents or gives them a character trait just visually. Like it just as a as a film guy, like this show is right up my alley. So yeah. I I watched the boys. How I've far seen, are you? I'm I'm only two episodes in it, so I just finished okay. the second episode. But so far, so for those who have not watched the boys or don't know anything about the boys, uh, the boys is a is a show about two guys that are looking to bring down a corporation that runs superheroes. So it's a world where superheroes are real. They do super things, but they are very much just like celebrities. And they are run by a corporation that protects all their bad things that they do. And the superheroes, which are called the Seven, they are definitely bad at times. <laughs> they are very bad at times. And they're they're normal, they're like normal people in the sense of how they act off camera, but when they're on camera, they're very they put on their superhero persona, but when they're off camera, they're very much like kind of depraved people. And so it's about these two guys who one of them, he lost his girlfriend. This happens in the very first episode. This is no spoiler, but he loses his girlfriend in a freak accident with a superhero. And so he wants revenge on this corporation because they tried to buy him off and he didn't like that obviously and then the other guy i forget his name he's the the english dude oh what's his name i can't remember billy butcher man billy butcher yes yeah so billy is this rogue agent who has been putting together a case to bring them down and has been looking to bring down the seven for a really long time and so he's teamed up with this other guy in order to bring down this corporation and so it's a really cool show. It's a really unique take on superheroes where it paints the superheroes in a bad light. Like they're not mm-hmm. good people. And it paints the average citizen as kind of a superhero in a way. Like they're doing incredible feats in order to overcome because they got to fight superheroes. So it's a, it's really good, dude. I'm, I'm very don't, glad I'm watching. Don't this. you worry. It's going to get a lot more grave for you going forward, but uh, yes. Um, but one thing I'll say about it, and and I'd love to hear your take on this, um, as you watch more of the show. But you could, you might even be able to pick up on it now. But I don't know if this was intentional. And obviously, the boys, as a as a graphic novel, was dealing with this way before any of these huge superhero movies were made. But the show almost feels like a meta meta counter narrative to <laughs> to the actual film industry that makes superhero movies mm. in, in kind of a way, right? Because you have the superheroes, everyone loves them on camera. But then when you hear about the behind-the-scenes dealings of what Disney has done to make a lot of these movies, and, you know, you're you're starting to think like, oh, you know, yeah, it's That's a little shady. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, it's, it's a good show, and I think uh, Carl Urban, who plays Billy Butcher, just knocks it out of the park episode after episode. He's, he, that is a fantastic role mm. uh, for him. He also played, uh, just a little side note here, he played um, Aomer 
in yes you know yes that's how you know he's good yeah dude i i i when i watched the first episode i was like wait where do i know him from and then i looked him up and i was like oh my gosh i can't believe it that's in you know yeah Uh, and star trek he's in star trek as well oh that's right yeah isn't he bones i don't know their names (laughs) okay he's the doctor yeah yeah exactly bones okay cool yeah I am not a got it right Trekkies. I'm not a Trekkie. I I'm not even gonna try to try, but I appreciate all things Star Trek. But that's not what today's episode's about. We talked about goosebumps. We talked about some awesome stuff. Also, Zach, just really quick before we leave here, remind us once again the name of your book, where it can be found, and how they can contact us so they can stay updated with everything Steel Lake Studio. Yep, so you guys are going to want to check out Nightmare at the Fair. It's going to be coming out on Kindle, so if you have any access to Amazon Kindle, that is where you will find it on October 31st. In order to get in contact with us, you're going to head over to steellakestudio.com, go to that community tab, send us a message, subscribe to our newsletter. You're never going to miss a thing at Steel Lake Studio. Well, that's a great way to end it. Thank you all for listening. Blessings to you, and we will see you next time on Parallel Quest. Bye.